The Westminster Confession into the 21st Century Conference is hosted annually by the Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The seminary's mission is to educate students who love the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, equipping pastors for the ministry of the gospel and preparing others in the church for effective service in His kingdom, all within the framework of the historic Reformed faith. This message is from the conference and is a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. To hear more about the seminary or the alliance, stay tuned after this message. Through this partnership, we're able to bring you the conference Westminster Confession into the 21st century. To uh, orient you to uh, what we're doing uh, this evening in this uh, particular section, I want to uh, read three passages of Scripture. And so if you have your Bible and you want to look at these uh, three passages of Scripture, I think it would be helpful as we... Uh, Go to the paper. The first is Leviticus 18. Leviticus chapter 18 and the uh, first five verses. And then we'll be turning to the New Testament, to Romans 10, and then uh, Galatians 3. Uh, First Leviticus 18. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, And say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live, if he does them, I am the Lord. And then in Romans chapter 10, we find uh, the Apostle Paul quoting from Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. And uh, I'll read the first few verses there to give you the context. Uh, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. And uh, here's, there's a reference there to uh, Leviticus 18.5. Then uh, Galatians chapter 3 is uh, the third text in uh, Galatians chapter 3. And the quotation really is in uh, verse 12. And I'll just read that. Uh, Galatians 3.12, However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. 
And uh, you see the quotation of Leviticus uh, chapter 18 and verse 5 there. And uh, so then to the uh, paper. And a couple of you have commented that uh, I gave you this paper and, and uh, so you could go home and uh, read it later. That would be fine. <laughs> Uh, that would make my task easier, so uh, I'd be all right with that. It's okay, Jerry. <laughs> all right. Uh, I, I did change the title slightly to uh, Moses, Westminster, and Your Ministry because I think there are uh, a little bit wider ramifications here than simply preaching. Uh, Leviticus 18.5 is Moses' classic statement regarding works. If a man does them... He shall live by them. Paul refers to Leviticus 18.5 in both Romans 10.5 and Galatians 3.12. Bible commentaries, systematic theologies, commentaries on the confession, and the Westminster Standard send mixed signals regarding these three texts and the covenant of works. Anthony Burgess, Westminster Divine, writing on works in the Mosaic Covenant, says, I do not find... In any point of divinity, learned men more confused and perplexed, being like Abraham's ram hung in a bush of briars and brambles by the head, as here. We too are confused and perplexed at this point. While we may confess the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace, we also misunderstand Moses and put believers under the law as a covenant of works. We do so because we do not understand Leviticus 18.5 and the New Testament references, Romans 10.5 and Galatians 3.12. When we follow the Westminster Assembly in its use of the triad of texts as scripture proofs, we become even more confused and perplexed. My objective is to uncover this confusion in the Westminster Standards, offer some historical perspective, and briefly show that in our confusion regarding Leviticus 18.5, we often reverse biblical priorities. Practically speaking, we put works before grace. To reach this objective, we take the following steps. First, we confirm that Leviticus 18.5 speaks of life in covenant with God. Second, although this is the case, the Westminster Standards use the triad of texts that we read as proof texts to validate its teaching on the covenant of works. This use of these proof texts implies that the Mosaic legislation is a covenant of works. Third, we examine John Ball, a Puritan scholar respected by the Westminster Divines and a forerunner to the assembly. He clearly teaches that, Moses, that the law of Moses is an administration of the covenant of grace. Ball does not use Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, or Galatians 3.12 with reference to the covenant of works. Fourth, we see that the scripture proofs were not approved by the Westminster Assembly as a whole, but were appended by committee. Finally, I affirm effective gospel ministry requires us to take a clear position regarding the Mosaic Covenant. That is, our preaching ought not to place men and women under the law as a covenant of works, 
nor treat our moral obligations as aspects of the covenant of works as we challenge righteous living before God. We move first to an overview of Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. The text is as follows, and we just read that. Uh, the following paragraph then, I am the Lord your God, Leviticus 18.1, reminds the people of how God spoke at Sinai of the preface and of the preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Westminster Shorter Catechism 44 asks, what does the preface of the Ten Commandments teach us? Answer, the preface to the Ten Commandments teacheth us that because God is the Lord and our God and our Redeemer. Therefore, we are bound to keep all of his commandments. We rightly hold God gave the Ten Commandments to his redeemed people. But God did not give Israel only Ten Commandments. We see this in our text. God tells the people, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes. And again, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments. In each of these combinations, statutes and judgments and judgments and statutes, God is speaking of the whole Mosaic legislation. Westminster Confession of Faith 19.3 indicates, Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give to the people of Israel as a church underage ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefiguring Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly of diverse instructions of moral duties. And 19.4, To them also, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws. All the laws and the covenant is in view in Leviticus 18, 1 through 5. In giving the people this law and covenant, God exhorts, You shall not do what was done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. God's people are to have a quite different pattern of for life than either the Egyptians or the Canaanites. Deuteronomy 5 gives a beautiful overview of this pattern of life in covenant with God. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God, whenever we call upon him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law, which I am setting before you today? God redeems his people and formerly enters into covenant with them. The covenant outlines the way of life for the people. To be sure... The moral stipulations show the people their sin. At the same time, the ceremonial prescriptions, as our confession notes, set Christ before the people in his graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits. When the people sin, they repair to the tabernacle and seek God's forgiveness in and through the prescribed ordinances. Thus the people live in covenant with their God. We come then to Leviticus 18.5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. We are interested in the clause by which a man may live if he does them. Walter Kaiser argues Leviticus 18 begins and ends 
with the theological setting of, I am the Lord your God. Thus, law-keeping here was Israel's sanctification and grand evidence that the Lord was already, was her God already. Kaiser adds, one of the ways of doing the law was to recognize the imperfections of one's life and thus to make a sacrifice for the atonement of one's sins. Leviticus 18.5, then, is not referring to any offer of eternal life as a reward for perfect law-keeping. It assumed and provided for law-breakers as a part of that law which was to be kept. John Murray concurs. Leviticus 18.5 is in a context in which the claims of God upon his redeemed and covenant people are being asserted and urged upon Israel. In this respect, Leviticus 18, 1-5 is parallel to Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. The preface, I am the Lord your God, Leviticus 18, 2, corresponds to the preface of the Ten Commandments. The whole passage is no more legalistic than are the Ten Commandments. Hence the words, which if a man do, he shall live in them, Verse 5 refers not to the life accruing from doing in a legalistic framework, but to the blessing attendant upon observance in redemptive and covenant relationship. Here now, however, begins the difficulty. As indicated at the outset, Bible commentaries, systematic theologies, commentaries on the Confession and the Westminster Standards themselves send mixed signals. We therefore turn to an examination of the triad of texts, Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, and Galatians 3.2 in the Westminster documents. Westminster Confession of Faith 7.2, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. The proof text for this first clause is Galatians 3.12, a quotation of Leviticus 18.5. One of the proof texts for the second clause, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity, is Romans 10.5, and a clear reference to Leviticus 18.5. The use of these texts to validate the covenant of works suggests that both Romans 10.5 and Galatians 3.12 speak of a covenant of works. The implication is, therefore, that the Mosaic legislation is a covenant of works. Westminster Confession of Faith 7.3 goes on to say, Man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they, might, that they may be saved. In contrast to the covenant of works, the covenant of grace freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved. One of the proof texts for this for these clauses of the confession is Romans 10.6, where Paul seems to oppose Moses on one side with salvation by grace through faith on the other. 
Romans 10, 5 and 6 reads, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness, a reference to Leviticus 18.5. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Paul continues to expound the gospel. The implication from this seeming contrast and the theological conclusion of many is that the Mosaic legislation is a covenant of works. Westminster Confession of Faith 19.2 God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with the power and the ability to keep it. The proof texts for this paragraph of the Confession include, but are not limited to, Romans 10.5 and Galatians 3.12. Turning to Westminster Larger Catechism 20, answer 20 speaks of the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created. God's providence included entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. The proof text for this section of answer 20 are Romans 10.5 and Galatians 3.12. Once again, Romans 10.5 refers to, and Galatians 3.12 quotes Leviticus 18.5. When A.A. Hodge expounds Confession of Faith, Chapter 7, God's Covenant with Man, he includes Larger Catechism 20 in his discussion. Hodge says that the promise of the covenant was life is proved from the nature of the penalty, which is recorded in terms, if disobedience was linked to death, obedience must have been linked to life. It is taught expressly in many passages of Scripture. Paul says, Romans 10:5, Moses describes the righteousness which, of the law, which is of the law, that he which doeth these things shall live by them. And then you'll also see Galatians 3:12 cited. Note Hodge's, Hodge connects Romans 10.5 to the covenant of works. As further proof, Hodge points to Galatians 3.12 and Leviticus 18.5. Westminster Larger Catechism 92 reads, The rule of obedience revealed to Adam in the estate of innocence and to all mankind in him, besides the special command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, was the moral law. The proof text for this answer include Romans 10.5, but there is no indication as to the portion of the answer to which the proofs apply. Westminster Shorter Catechism Answer 40 corresponds to Larger Catechism 92. The rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. The proof texts are Romans 2.14 and 15 and Romans 10.5. Westminster Larger Catechism 93 is more specific. What is the moral law? Answer, the moral law is the declaration of the will of God to mankind, directing and binding everyone to personal perfect and perpetual conformity and obedience thereunto in the frame and disposition of the whole man, soul and body, and in performance of all those duties of holiness and righteousness which he oweth to God and man, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it.
Larger Catechism 98 reminds us the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Answer 93 then teaches the moral law binds everyone to personal, perfect, and perpetual conformity and obedience, promising life upon the fulfilling and threatening death upon the breach of it. The proof texts are Romans 10.5, Galatians 3.10 and 12. In addition, the language uh, larger Catechism 93 uses is the same that the Catechism uses with regard to the covenant of works or the covenant of life, and the proof texts are the same. Answer 20 speaks of God entering into a covenant of life with Adam upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. Here there is a more direct connection between the Mosaic legislation as summarized in the Ten Commandments and the covenant of works. Finally, in Westminster's Sum of Saving Knowledge, the section titled Practical Use of Saving Knowledge begins, The chief general use of Christian doctrine is to convince a man of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, John 16:8, partly by the law of the covenant of works or the covenant of works, that he may be humbled and become penitent, and partly by the gospel or the covenant of grace, that he may become unfeigned an unfeigned believer in Jesus Christ and be strengthened in his faith upon solid ground and warrants and give evidence the truth of his faith by good fruits and so be saved. The sum of the covenant of works or the law is this. If thou do all that is commanded and not fail in any point, thou shalt be saved. But if thou fail, thou shalt die. Romans 10, Galatians 3, 10 and 12. I'll skip to the uh, next paragraph. Uh, This introduction to the practical use of saving knowledge clearly connects the law with the covenant of works. The proof text affirming the law is the covenant of works, not only a covenant of works, are Romans 10.5 and Galatians 3.10 and 12. Once again, remember, Romans 10.5 refers to Leviticus 18.5 and Galatians 3.12 quotes Leviticus 18.5. Here is the dilemma. On one hand, the exposition of the Ten Commandments in the catechisms pointedly affirms the law was given to a redeemed people. Here is larger catechism answer 101. The preface to the Ten Commandments is contained in these words. I am the Lord your God, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage wherein God manifesteth his sovereignty as being Jehovah, the eternal, immutable, and almighty God, having his being in and of himself, and giving uh, being to all his words and works, and that he is God in covenant, as with Israel of old, so with all his people, who as he brought them out of their bondage in Egypt, so he delivereth us from our spiritual thraldom and that therefore we are bound to take him for our God alone and to keep all his commandments. Interestingly, one of the proof texts to the words, therefore we are bound to take him for our God alone and to keep all his commandments, is Leviticus 18.30. The foundation for obedience is, I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 18.2 contains the same reminder. Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 18.5, as 
previously indicated, therefore refers to an already redeemed people. On the other hand, the proof texts used in the Westminster documents strongly imply, and Westminster's sum of saving knowledge explicitly states, the law is the covenant of works. To help gain perspective on the teaching of the Westminster Confession and catechisms, we turn to John Ball, 1585-1640. His treatise, of the Covenant of Grace was published in London after his death in 1645 by Simeon Ash. Alexander Mitchell puts Ball in a favorable light in his own Westminster Assembly, its history and standards. With respect to the doctrine of the covenants, which some assert to have been derived from Holland, I think myself now, after careful investigation, entitled to maintain that there is nothing taught in the confession which has not uh, been long before in substance taught by Rollock Howey in Scotland and by Cartwright, Preston, Perkins, Ames, and Ball in his two catechisms in England. The latter and most remarkable treatise of Ball on the Covenant of Grace was published with recommendatory notices by Reynolds, Caudry, Calumley, Hill, Ash, and Burgess. At the very time the assembly began to frame its confession and it contains all that has been admitted to the, into the Westminster Standards or generally received on this head among British Calvinists. Mitchell again mentions Ball, whose treatise on the Covenant of Grace was published in 1645 and recommended by several members of the Assembly. According to Mitchell, Ball sets forth a standard presentation on the Covenant for that era. We therefore repair to Ball's treatise to shed light on our present subject. We first look at what Ball says about the covenant in general and the covenant of works in particular. Then we review his teaching regarding the covenant of grace in general and the Mosaic administration of the covenant of grace in specific. The essence of the covenant properly consists in the promise and the stipulation but the words of the covenant contain obedience required of God and promised of them in the covenant, and so by metonymy are called the covenant. The promise, capital P, is the giving of some future good. The promise, lowercase p, is the retribution of some performance. Retribution is the just response in the performance of the duties the covenant stipulates. Ball follows this definition in framing the covenant of works. The covenant which God made with our first parents is that mutual contract or agreement wherein God promised eternal happiness to man on condition of entire and perfect obedience to be performed in his own person. Ball is quick to note God's grace. Better watch myself here. The covenant God made in justice, yet so as it was of grace, likewise to make such a free promise and to bestow great things upon man for his obedience. At the same time, the author of the covenant is God, not God and man. For God does not enter into covenant with man, not as his equal, but as his sovereign. And man is bound to accept the conditions offered by the Lord. 
Then there is once again the note of grace. The covenant is of God and that of his free grace and love. It was of grace that God was pleased to bind himself to his creature. Paul adds these distinctions. On one hand, there is the covenant of works, wherein God covenants with man to give him eternal life upon condition of perfect obedience in his own person. On the other hand, there is the covenant of grace, which God makes with man, promising eternal life upon condition of believing. The former God makes with Adam before the fall. The latter God makes with man after the fall. The covenant of works was a covenant of friendship, not of reconciliation. Being once broken, it could not be repaired. It promised no mercy or pardon, admitted no repentance, accepted no obedience, but what was perfect and complete. As Ball progresses with his discussion, he repeats the thought that the covenant of works cannot be repaired once broken. In all of this discussion of the covenant of works, Ball makes no mention of the triad of texts, Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, and Galatians 3.12. Contrary to how the Westminster Confession and Catechisms use this triad of texts, he does not use these texts in any way to support the scriptural doctrine of the covenant of works. Ball does say, speaking of the covenant of works, the form of this covenant stood in the special promise of God to be received from justice as a reward for his work, do this and live. And the exact and rigid extraction of perfect obedience in his own person without the least spot or failing for matter or manner. We might construe the words do this and live as a reference to Leviticus 18.5. However, Ball makes no such connection. He urges us to interpret these words evangelically when he does use them in connection with the administration of the covenant of grace under Moses. Paul begins his general discussion of the covenant of grace with this definition. The covenant of grace is that free and gracious covenant which God of his mere mercy in Jesus Christ made with man a miserable sinner, promising unto him pardon of sin and eternal happiness. If he will return from his iniquity, embrace mercy, reach forth by faith unfeigned, walk before God sincere, faithful and, wi uh, faithful and willing obedience, as become such a creature lifted unto such enjoyment and partake, partaker of such precious promises. This covenant is the opposite to the former in kind, so that at one and the same time man cannot be under the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Paul goes on to explain that materially the law, that is the matter and the argument of the law, as a rule stands in force. But if formerly it did continue as a covenant, there could be no place for repentance nor for the promise of forgiveness or mercy reaching to the pardon of sin or the quickening of them that are dead in trespasses. The covenant of works is of justice. The covenant of grace is of grace and mercy, which cannot agree and take place in one and the same subject. Paul also quickly points out 
that the covenant of grace, that in the covenant of grace, God sets forth mere and rich grace, and that to the creature which has deserved hell. And since this covenant entered immediately upon the fall, and so may be called a covenant of reconciliation, not of friendship, it was made with man a sinner, miserable, and by nature the child of wrath. And again, in the covenant of grace, man by nature the child of wrath is made the child of God by grace and adoption. In the same place, Paul maintains the covenant of nature or of works was neither the last nor everlasting, but being first made, but being first made way for a better, and being broken was antiquated and disannulled to our singular comfort. The perpetuity of the covenant of works is therefore in the just punishment of wrath brought upon Adam and Eve and their posterity. Ball turns to the place of good works in his general discussion of the covenant of grace. Obedience to God's command is covenanted, not as the cause of life, but as the qualification and effect of faith and as a way of life. Ball then adds, for manner of administration, this covenant is diverse, as it pleased God in sundry manners to dispense it. But for substance, it is one, the last, unchangeable, and everlasting. He spends an entire chapter showing the covenant of grace is either promised or promulgated and established. Promised to the fathers, first to Adam, and afterwards to the patriarchs, and last to the people of Israel promulgated after the fullness of time. The covenant of promise, then, was the covenant which God made with Adam, the fathers, and all Israel in Jesus Christ to be incarnate, crucified, and raised from the dead. As Paul begins his discussion of the administration of the covenant of grace to Adam, he again distinguishes three major stages of administration as the covenant of promise. First, from Adam until Abraham, Secondly, from Abraham until the covenant made with Israel upon the mount. Thirdly, from Moses to Christ. We move then to Ball's exposition of the administration of the covenant of grace under Moses. Ball begins by setting forth four views of the Mosaic economy. First, some make the Old and New Testament as the covenant of works and grace, opposed in substance and kind, and not in degree alone, and that to introduce an unsound distinction, a distinction of promise set against covenant or testament, as though God conferred grace unto the fathers only by promise and not by covenant, leaving all that Moses puts under the covenant to be the covenant of works and the Old Testament. Ball dispenses with this position. Neither can it be proved that God ever made a covenant of works with, fallen, with the creature fallen. But whenever the scripture speaks of God entering into covenant with man fallen and plunged into sin and for sin deserving wrath, it must be understood of the covenant of grace. Second, others take the Old Testament a covenant subservient to the covenant of grace and describe it to be that which God with Israel, God made with Israel on Mount Sinai 
to prepare them to faith and to inflame them with the desire to, to the promise and evangelical covenant, which otherwise had languished in their minds, and to restrain them from wickedness, as it were, with a bit and bridle, until the time wherein God should send the spirit of adoption into their hearts. In the covenant subservient, God is considered as reproving sin and approving righteousness in the covenant of grace as pardoning sin and renewing man in righteousness. The stipulation of the old is, do this and live, Galatians 3.12. Of the new, believe and you will not come into judgment, John 3.18. Paul adds, the Old Testament was added to the promise of grace that went before. Paul describes this second position as using one of our triad of texts, Galatians 3.12, to show the Mosaic legislation differs in substance with the covenant of grace. Paul disavows this position and this use of Galatians 3.12, which quotes Leviticus 18.5, the one who does them shall live by them. The divines of this opinion, says Paul, make the old covenant differ from the new in substance and kind and not in degree of manifestation, as also did the former position. Third, most divines hold the old and new covenant to be one in substance and kind to differ only in degrees. So far, so good. For most commonly, they distinguish them thus, the Old Testament promises life to them that obey the law and condemns all not perfectly conformable. The new does freely pardon sins and gives salvation to them that believe in Christ. Ball adds several other comparisons and says how these differences could stand if they are not covenants opposite in kind is not easy to understand. Ball therefore disavows the third position. It cannot be conceived how the Old Covenant should exact perfect obedience deserving of life as necessary to salvation and yet promise pardon to the repentant believer for these two are contrary to one another. The covenant that God made with the Jews is but one and how should we conceive the law in one and the same covenant to be propounded as a rigid draft of prime nature and with moderation also as a covenant of works and the covenant of grace likewise, when the covenant is one and the conditions the same. Fourth, some divines hold the Old Testament, even the law, as it was given on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai, to be the covenant of grace for substance. It was given to be a rule of life to a people in covenant, directing them how to walk before God in holiness and righteousness. The first position is that the Mosaic legislation is a covenant of works. The second and third position are that the Mosaic legislation is a hybrid, both a covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The fourth position is that the Mosaic legislation is an administration of the covenant of grace. This, says Ball, 
I take to be the truth, and it may be confirmed by many strong reasons out of the Word of God. Ball then proceeds to explain the biblical position. The covenant of grace is expressed in these words, I will be your God and you shall be my people, wherein God promises to be favorable to the iniquity of his servants and to remember their sins no more and to bless them with all spiritual blessings in heavenly things. For Baal, this is the heart of the covenant. When God says to Israel, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, does he not propound himself as their king, judge, savior, and redeemer, spiritual redeemer from the bondage of sin and Satan, whereof that temporal deliverance was a type. Ball then deals with the preface to the Ten Commandments, and it is further to be noted that these words, I am the Lord your God, are prefixed to the first commandment in the law. So are they annexed to all other sundry places of Scripture as an argument to move to sincere obedience. Here, Ball specifically references Leviticus 18.5 as one of those texts to which the words, I am the Lord your God, is prefixed. Ball reiterates the calls and calls the law, the rule of life prescribed to them of the true and only God who is theirs by covenant. Ball's reference to Leviticus 18.5 indicates he takes these words, the one who does them shall live by them, not as a covenant of works, but as a statement of the law, as a rule of life for those in covenant with God. As a rule of life, the law was given for this end, that it might instruct us in faith, which is the mother of a good conscience and love. Christ and faith is the end and the soul of the law. Ball references Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He continues, the sum of the law is faith or love, and both these carry the same sense, because though Moses makes mention of love and Paul of faith, yet the love does not Yet that love does comprehend faith, and this faith does contain love. In this context, Baal also references Deuteronomy 10.12. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? As Baal says, Love comprehends faith, and faith contains love. Therefore, the Lord in covenant, commanding the observance of this law, exacts faith also, without which the law cannot be obeyed in an acceptable manner. Ball therefore holds that the law is not opposed to faith. Rather, the law teaches faith. As God is the one who shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith, without question, the covenant of grace, he taught the circumcision. In the covenant of grace, he taught the circumcision to seek justification by faith and not by the works 
of the law. How then do we interpret Leviticus 18.5? These words, do this and live, must not be interpreted as if they did promise life upon condition of perfect obedience. For works done in such exactness as is required, but they be expounded evangelically, describing the subject capable of eternal life, not the cause why life and salvation is conferred. Paul then proceeds to list several verses which are similar to Leviticus 18.5. He concludes such passages are to be understood of sincere and upright walking and show who are justified and to whom the promises of life pertain, but not why they are justified. Thus, Paul understands the words, do this and live from within the covenant and evangelically. And in this and in like manner, that of the Apostle Paul, the doers of the word are justified, may be expounded evangelically, not of them that fulfill the law, which should be justified by their works, but of them that soundly obey, who are justified of grace by faith, not for their works. To ensure we understand Scripture opposes all works to justification by grace through faith, and such works are never meritorious, but also quite necessary, Ball immediately includes the following. Hence it appears that what works the apostle opposes to faith in the matter of justification. Not only perfect works done by the strength of nature, of which there be none at all, but works commanded in the law as it was given to Israel, such as Abraham and David walked in after they were effectually called, such as without whose presence faith itself could not be existent, such as are necessary in the such as are necessary in the person justified. These works are opposed to faith in the matter of justification. Not that faith can be without them, but because they cannot be causes together with faith in justification. Ball therefore insists Leviticus 18.5 is not a statement of the covenant of works, but rather a statement of the law as a rule of life for those who are already in covenant with God. In fact, the law summarized in the statements such as Leviticus 18.5 include trust in God's promises and faith in Christ. Christ is the end of the law and the soul of the law. Where Paul references Galatians 3.12, he outlines a position on the law and the use of this text he disavows. Finally, when Paul references Romans 10.5, along with Romans 10.4 and 10.6, he is discussing Israel's perversion of the law. And therefore the apostle does reprehend the Jews as perverters of the true sense and meaning of the law when they sought to be justified by their works, and shows that Moses taught them to look for salvation in Messiah and seek for the righteousness which is by faith.
Ball's position is therefore that our triad of texts, Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, and Galatians 3.12, ought not to be used to verify the Mosaic legislation as a covenant of works. The focus of this study is the use of the triad of texts, Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, and Galatians 3.12 by the Westminster Assembly as scripture proofs. The assembly uses these texts to affirm the Mosaic legislation was an administration of the covenant of works. How were these texts appended to the confession and what debate was involved? By the 4th December 1646, the confession of faith was finished and on that day it was presented by by the whole assembly to the House of Commons and on the 7th in the same way to the House of Lords. The House of Commons requested the assembly to add scripture proofs. A committee of the assembly, not the assembly as a whole, then presented the confession with scripture proofs in the margin. This took place on short notice, perhaps within one week, April 22, 1647, to April 29. The assembly sent, did send its rationale to the House of Commons for not originally including scripture proofs. Among these reasons, the assembly reported that most of the particulars of the confession being received truths among all churches, there was seldom any debate about the truth or the falsehood of any article or clause but rather about the manner of expression and the fitness to have it put in the confession. And then this uh, telling statement, were any texts debated in the assembly, they were never put to a vote. It therefore appears the scripture proofs for the confession were hurriedly added by a committee and without the debate and vote of the assembly. The larger catechism was completed on 15th October 1647, read over the assembly on 20th and on the 22nd carried up to the two houses. As in the case of the confession, proof texts were added later. It was presented with proofs on 14th April 1648. Mitchell rightly observes, it was the proof text which contributed so much to give the doctrinal standards of the assembly such a firm hold on the minds of the lay members of the church. We may add the influence of the Westminster's, of Westminster's proof text upon the ministerial members of the church and seminary professors as well. The linkage of the triad of texts on which we focus in this paper with the covenant of works by way of Westminster's proof text, clearly implies the giving of the law at Sinai is an administration of the covenant of works. Larger Catechism 93 is more explicit regarding this linkage, including the use of proof text. Practically, this influence of which Mitchell speaks reaches into the pew in worship, in preaching, 
and in other areas of ministry. While we maintain that right standing with God is by grace alone, through faith alone, when it comes to the implementation of moral standards, we often falter. We may not truly be settled as to whether the Mosaic legislation is an administration of the covenant of works, an administration of the covenant of grace, or some sort of a hybrid administration. Scott Clark observes one of the tensions which remained unresolved in the 16th and 17th centuries was the matter of Israel's relationship to the covenant of works. Burgess's confusion and perplexity is with us today. If it remains unresolved, it affects our ministry. Allow me to offer some simple examples with regard to worship and preaching. Our worship, albeit unintentionally, may have a legalistic or negative edge. As Reformed men and women who hold to the regulative principle, we are rightly concerned about biblical standards in worship and God-honoring worship. As a result, we press ourselves and others to conform to these biblical standards. We may emphasize our own responsibilities and duties and fail to emphasize adequately God's gracious covenantal presence and work in worship. We reverse the biblical priorities. Practically speaking, we put works before grace. A typical invocation may include confessions of our inability to perform adequately the required tasks and live up to our obligations, along with pleas for God to accept us and our meager worship because Christ is our advocate. This posture sets the tone for our worship. To be sure, Christ is our advocate, but this is not the point. An invocation, by definition, is an invoking of or praying for the presence of God in worship among his people in order to apply his covenant to his people as he promises. Again, we may reverse the biblical priorities. Practically speaking, we put works before grace. As we enter into worship with an emphasis on covenant renewal, we stress our covenant responsibilities and the proper use of the biblically ordained elements of worship. Worship may then place more emphasis on what we do than upon what God has done, is doing, and will do among and for his people. Again, we reverse the biblical priorities or have a hybrid view. Week after week, we must return to renew our covenant pledge because week after week, we fail. Practically speaking, we put works before grace. But God's covenant declaration to us is simple and clear. I will be your God, and you will be or shall be my people. This is the commitment of the living God to his people. Do we fail? If we are faithless, God remains faithful for he cannot 
deny himself. God's word stands, and God's commitment to his people stands. Our preaching may place men and women under the law as a covenant of works or treat moral obligations and duties as aspects of the covenant of works. With such an emphasis, our preaching may take on a legalistic or negative emphasis. Sermon applications may major on what men and women must do and how successful they are in accomplishing their duties. We may expect one of two responses to such ministry. Here are two examples, although anecdotal, these are real responses by confessing Christians to teaching in Reformed churches, which I perceive to be negative or perhaps even legalistic. The first response is a question. Why does going to church have to feel like being sent to the principal's office? The second response comes as a result of sitting under such ministry over a period of time. I know that I am not Catholic, but I always feel as though I cannot measure up. Once again, the root of the problem may be that we reverse the biblical priorities. Practically speaking, we put works before grace. Preaching worthy of the name declares the message of grace to the people always needing this message. The heart of the message is, your God reigns. Or in the New Testament, Jesus is Lord. The great wonder is that this living, reigning God and King enters into covenant with miserable, sinful, fallen creatures and commits himself to them. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. As his covenant people, God graciously gives them his law as a way in which they may display their love for God and for others. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. The priority in this relationship is God's love for his people. In turn, God's people may then express love for him and for others. We love because he first loved us. Here is where we stand. In context, Leviticus 18.5 speaks of the rule of life God gave to Israel. Paul refers to Leviticus 18.5 in Romans 10.5 and quotes Leviticus 18.5 in Galatians 3.12. The Westminster Standards use these texts to validate their teaching on the covenant of works. The implication from this use of these texts is that the Mosaic legislation is a covenant of works. It appears, however, the scripture proofs were not approved by the assembly as a whole but appended by committee. The result is an ongoing tension with regard to the Mosaic legislation. John Ball, a Puritan scholar respected by many of the Westminster divines and a forerunner to the Westminster Assembly, 
clearly teaches the law of Moses is an administration of the covenant of grace. Ball affirms our understanding of Leviticus 18.5 and does not use Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, or Galatians 3.12 with reference to the covenant of works. Westminster's use of Leviticus 18.5, Romans 10.5, and Galatians 3.12 may indeed reveal an unresolved tension among the Westminster divines regarding the law of Moses. Burgess affirms this is the case. The proverbial ball, however, is now in our court. Effective gospel ministry and preaching requires that we resolve the tension lest by default and despite our confession we become preachers of works rather than ministers of grace. Our preaching ought not to place men and women under the law as a covenant of works, nor treat any of our moral obligations and duties as aspects of the covenant of works as we challenge holy and righteous living before God. You have been listening to the Westminster Confession into the 21st Century, a production of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals in partnership with Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. The Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary's mission is to educate students who love the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word, equipping pastors for the ministry of the gospel, and preparing others in the church for effective service in His kingdom, all within the framework of the historic Reformed faith. For more information on the seminary, call 1-866-778-7338. That's 1-866-778-7338. Or you can write to 7418 Penn Avenue, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 15208. Or visit online at www dot r p t s dot e d u the alliance is a listener supported ministry that's known for teaching such as the philadelphia conference on reformed theology the international council on biblical inerrancy as well as the nationally syndicated broadcasts the bible study hour every last word god's living word or dr barnhouse and the bible for more information on the alliance Call 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. Or you can write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103. Or visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring a wealth of materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.